actor's actually doing because you lack all the background to make sense of their activity. It's hard to work out the meaning, really, of what they're saying, what they're doing without that background. So you see somebody there and you go, well, are they actually wielding a lightsaber, fighting off a dark Sith Lord, or are they just energetically shaking a cocktail? Who can tell? Without the background, you don't know until all that background information has been added in. When you're reading about Jesus of Nazareth in the Christian Bible, in the Gospel accounts, it's a bit like that. Hard to perceive what he's really saying and what he's really doing. I mean, you can read it, you can see what it says, but what's the meaning of that? Hard to tell without the background. What's the right background for understanding Jesus of Nazareth? Well, it's his Jewish background. It's the Christian Old Testament often fits into that background. So, for example, in John 6, which we're looking at today, three things happen in John chapter 6. Let me tell you what they are. The first thing that happens is that Jesus miraculously feeds in excess of 5,000 people. John records for us there that there's 5,000 blokes who were there, which implies that there were probably their families there as well. So, in excess of 5,000 people, Jesus single-handedly, miraculously feeds these people starting with just five small loaves of bread and two small fish. And John goes to the effort of saying they were small loaves. They weren't sort of mega loaves. They were small loaves and they were, what's more, small fish. These were not sort of whales that he just, oh, look, someone's brought two whales along. We'll divvy that up and, well, no. Jesus somehow miraculously feeds in excess of 5,000 people with just a small amount of food. What's that about? I mean, it's impressive, but what, is it, what does it mean? What's it meant to do? That's the first thing that happens in this chapter. Second thing that happens in the chapter, same day, that evening, Jesus' disciples get in a boat, cross the lake, big lake, think big lake, right? Think inland sea sort of lake. Storm comes up, big winds. Jesus comes to them in the boat, walking on the water. And when he gets to them, he says, I am, don't be afraid. What's that about? What are, you, what are you meant to understand by that event? The third thing that happens in this chapter is they get to the other side of the lake. It's a place called Capernaum. Jesus is there in the synagogue. The crowd who'd been miraculously fed, they in the morning go, oh, the disciples of Jesus have gone, hey, Jesus is not here. We just had this awesome feeding. Where is that guy? And so some boats turn up and he, they beat the crowd, jump in the boats and say, to Capernaum. And so they go to Capernaum and they search in Capernaum and they find Jesus in the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. And then Jesus has a conversation with them, an extended conversation. Now, clearly, if you look in John's Gospel, most of the time in John chapter 6 is taken up with that conversation. That's the, that's the really significant thing in the chapter. But the two things that happened before it, the miraculous feeding and the walking on the water, that's meant to be the setup to help you understand the conversation. But we look at it all and sort of go, I don't really get it. And that's because we're missing the background. We're looking at it as though we're against a green screen when we actually need to fill in the background. So I'm going to help fill in that background for you. The right to really have in mind to understand what's going on in John chapter 6 
is actually the defining event back in Israel's history. What was the defining event? Oh, maybe there were a few key moments, but this is one of the defining events in Israel's history, which was known as the Exodus. The Exodus was that moment when the one true living God intervened, rescued the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt, brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the desert to himself at Mount Sinai, where he revealed himself to them and his law, and then brought them all the way through into the Promised Land. That moment of rescue, that moment of deliverance, was known as the Exodus. Now, this moment was a big, big deal, not just at the time, but it remained a big deal for, for the Israelites going forward into the centuries. So if you then read through the rest of the Jewish Old Testament, you will see constant reference and allusion back to that Exodus moment, because that was the great moment when the one true living God intervened and rescued us, delivered us. So that becomes an ongoing basis of praise to God, it becomes something they celebrate every single year through the Jewish Passover festival, which we'll come to in a moment. And it became a basis for the Israelites for a hope that God would one day intervene again and rescue them. Oh, that you might intervene again one day and rescue us, deliver us, like you did back at that Exodus, that amazing rescue you, you uh, won there. So the Exodus is the big deal. That's the right background for understanding John chapter 6. There's five things I need to tell you about the Exodus. You might need to jot them down. So you've got a little piece of paper there, you can jot them down or make a note in your phone. Five things about the Exodus you probably want to remember. The first thing about the Exodus was that it happened under the leadership of Moses. Moses was a prophet raised up by God to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. But the thing about Moses was this. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses makes a prophecy. I said he was a prophet. And the, pro the prophecy he makes in Deuteronomy 18 is, he says, one day the one true living God will raise up another prophet like me. Moses, one of the greatest prophets, if not the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, who saw the one true living God face to face, he says, one day the one true living God will raise up another prophet capital P prophet, not just any old prophet, a capital P prophet like me. That's the first thing you've got to know. Second thing you need to know about the Exodus. Before the Lord had rescued them out of Egypt, the Lord appeared, the one true living God, appeared to Moses and re revealed himself to Moses and said to Moses, Moses, I'm going to send you to my people, the Israelites, who are in slavery, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to be the one who's saying, Pharaoh, let God's people go so they can go, and you're going to be the guy. Moses is freaking out, and so Moses says in Exodus chapter 3, you can read about it, Moses says, but Lord, when I go to the Israelites, they will say, what God has appeared to you? Which God has appeared to you? And the Lord says, you can tell them my name. You give them my name. Now, you, you might not realise that the one true living God has a name. He does have a name. And it's not God. God just means a divine being, right? What's his name? Well, in Exodus chapter 3, he reveals it. And he says, you go and tell them that I am sent you. The one true living God's name is I am or 
I am that I am, or I will be that I will be. I am is his name. Now, in our Bibles, how is that rendered? Well, through sort of coming through the Hebrew and the, the transliteration of Hebrew into English. In, in our English Old Testament, that is often rendered as the Lord in capital letters. If you're looking through your Old Testament, through the book of Exodus, when you see Lord in capital letters, that's a reference to the I am name of God. So you need to know about the Lord reveals his name, I am. Third thing you need to know. Third thing you need to know about the Exodus is the Passover. How did God deliver them out of slavery in Egypt? Well, what the Lord, the one true living God did was he did a whole bunch of miraculous signs to show to Pharaoh who was really God. You know, Pharaoh claimed to be a God himself. And so there's a bit of a battle there in the book of Exodus between who is the real God. Is it Pharaoh or is it Yahweh, the I am God, the God of the Israelites? Who's the real God? Well, the one true living God shows himself to be the real God by doing all these miraculous signs. The final sign, it was known as the Passover. It worked like this. Each family, whether Israelite or Egyptian, each family that believed the message that had come through Moses, each family said, okay, you are the one true living God. Each family would therefore do what that one true living God said they should do. And what that one true living God said they should do was take a lamb, kill it, cook it, eat it, eat its flesh, and take the blood from that lamb and wipe it on the door frame of your house. Then what will happen would be, was that the angel of the Lord was going to pass through the whole land of Egypt... And when it came to a doorway, if there was blood on the doorway, then the angel of the Lord would pass over that household and they would be saved. For the the families where there was no blood on the doorframe, where they'd not listened to the voice of the one true living God, where they'd not availed themselves of the means of salvation that he provided, then the firstborn in that household would die. In fact, all the firstborns of the family, of the people, but also of the animals, would die. This was known as the Passover. This was the great final moment of deliverance because such was the grief and the mourning within the land of Egypt when this happened because so many people had not listened to the voice of the one true living God. Such was the outpouring of grief that Pharaoh said, get out of here, go. And so this was the great moment of deliverance, the Passover. And that's why every year the Jewish people still today celebrate the Passover as the great moment when the Lord brought them out of slavery in Egypt through the Passover. So you need to know about the Passover. Fourth thing you need to know about the Exodus is after the Israelites came out of the land, they're heading away from Egypt and then Pharaoh had a change of heart and decided, actually, you know what? Let's go get them back. So Pharaoh and his army head out after the Israelites. The Israelites end up sort of cornered a little bit with the army coming after them on one side and a sea, the Sea of Reeds it was known as, in front of them. And they're sort of a bit stuck. What's going to happen? Well, what the one true living God continues their deliverance. How so? He parts the waters miraculously so that the Israelites can get through the sea, walking on dry ground. They come through... The Israelites, so the Egyptians, just chase them 
they come in and the sea comes back on top of the Egyptian army and they're wiped out. The Israelites are rescued through the sea. Now, that moment of deliverance is uh, remembered time and time again in the Old Testament. There's a moment in uh, Psalm 77 where remembering that great deliverance through the sea, the psalmist says, You, O God, you trod the waves and made a path through the sea so that the people could follow them through. They said it was like that you yourself trod the waves and made the path so that your people could follow you through. Psalm 77. That's the fourth thing. Final thing you need to know about the Exodus is manna. After the people were delivered and they came through the sea, because tragically, even though they'd experienced such a great deliverance, the Israelites refused to listen to the voice of the one true living God. They rebelled against him. Instead of going direct to the promised land, they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. That is a very long time. 40 years ago was the year 1970. No, 80. 77. Thank you. That's, that's, I knew that maths was possible. Um, imagine from 1970, I mean, you can't even imagine so long ago, 1977. They're wandering in the desert. What do you eat when you're in the desert? Well, the one true living God, despite their disobedience, the one true living God provided for his people, such as his kindness and love. What did he provide? Good question. Answer, manna. Manna, M-A-N-N-A, manna was this bread-like substance that every morning appeared on the ground so the Israelites could go out and collect this manna and eat it. It was called manna because the very first time they saw it, they went, what is it? And if you say, what is it in Hebrew, you go, manna. <laughs> so they called it, what is it? Because they couldn't, <laughs> so that's what it's called. What is it? Manna. And so they ate manna for 40 years. Now, what you need to know about manna is, there was always enough manna, Always. There was always enough manna to feed all the Israelites. There was always sufficient. Second thing you need to know is, it did not keep. It spoilt if you tried to keep it overnight. So some people tried to keep it overnight, and the next morning, it had gone off. There is an exception to that about the Sabbath day, but you know, we can talk about that later. All right? That's what you need to know. So there's the five things you need to know about the Exodus. What were they again? Under the leadership of Moses, who said there'd be another prophet... It was done, um, the Lord revealed his name, I am. That happened through the Passover, where they ate the flesh of the Passover lamb. Where they came through the sea, and they ate the manna. Now, with those five things in place, let's see what John chapter 6 means, what it looks like. Think about the events in John chapter 6, if you've got it open there in front of you. First event, as I said, was Jesus miraculously feeds in excess of 5,000 people with what? Bread. They all have enough bread to eat. In fact, not just enough, because after the event, there were, they collected 12 baskets of leftovers. 
This wasn't some sort of hallucination moment where they actually all got just a tiny, tiny crumb, but they felt, oh, I feel so full. No, no, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. You clearly go, I can't even work out how the 12 baskets came from the five loaves, let alone that they all got fed on top of that. Like, this is clearly a miracle. Miraculously fed with bread. What's that about? Notice what the people conclude. Notice what those who are there conclude. John chapter 6, verse 14. What do they say? After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Right? What was the promise about that Moses made, the prophecy he made? They look at the sign and go, wow, this... Maybe this is the guy. Surely this is the guy Moses spoke about, the capital P prophet, because he's just done a miraculous feeding with bread. Maybe he's the guy. What's the next thing that happens? Jesus comes to the disciples that evening. How? Walking on the water. And what does he say when he gets to them? Have a look there in the text. When he gets to them, what does he say? He says, I am is what he literally says. I am, don't be afraid. He comes walking on the water and says God's name, I am. What's going on here? These two signs, one done publicly, one done privately to the disciples, are pointing to Jesus' identity. The people, the crowd, think, oh, maybe he's the great prophet Moses spoke about. But even better than that, when Jesus himself comes to the disciples, he doesn't just say, yeah, I'm the prophet. He says, I am. That's who's come to you. Walking on the water. Like only the one true living God can do. It points to Jesus' identity, these signs. But it doesn't just point to his identity. It then points, therefore, to what he can give you. Now, that's where we're going as we go into the uh, conversation that then takes place. Jesus, as he gets to Capernaum. Jesus goes to Capernaum. The crowd who had the miraculous feeding, they chase him, they come, they meet with him at Capernaum, and they start to have a conversation with Jesus. Now, as I said at the beginning, the conversation is the big feature of the chapter, right? It's, the, it's where the real detail comes, where you're going to learn some stuff about Jesus and what he offers and what he brings. Now, the thing about John's gospel is it's often got these long conversations, which are called discourses. That's what the academics like to call it, right? These long discourses, which it can be a bit hard to access. It can be a bit hard to just follow the logic. So I've got this bit of a crazy idea about how we're going to do it right now. And, well, you're just going to have to go with me because I guess I've got the microphone. So what we're going to do is I've sort of divided up the discourse. As you read through this conversation, it happens in eight installments, eight interactions. The crowd rock up, they say something, Jesus says something in response, that's one. The crowd says something else, Jesus says something, that's number two. There's eight of them. The first four come to a great climax. Then after that, the mood shifts and the crowd start to get a little bit antsy with Jesus. They don't like his answers. In fact, the next four end up with a whole bunch of people walking away from Jesus. Now, we're only going to have time to do the first four. Such a shame. We just need 
two-hour public meetings. But anyway, we're only going to get to do the first four, but I encourage you to go away and read the second four, and I'll, I'll make a few comments to try to help you access that, right? But the way we're going to do it is we're actually going to sort of break it up and act it out. Now, I've asked Issa to read out the Jesus bits, so she's going to read out the Jesus bits, but I need four volunteers to be representatives from the crowd in the synagogue who are interacting with Jesus. And I've got it written down here for you, so you just, it's only one line each. It's pretty easy, very simple. Come on, four volunteers. Fantastic. <laughs> They're all sitting in the back row. One. Who else? Two. Three. One more. Four. Okay, there you go, all in the back row. No worries. Now, so what we're going to do, we're going to sort of listen to this conversation. Now, you've got all that background in mind now, right? The Exodus stuff, the feeding, the walking on the water, the I am bit, all of that's happened, right? Now we're going to listen to the conversation and try to access what's going on. Does that make sense? All right, here we go. Interaction number one. Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which, he, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So it's really helpful if you've got your Bible open so you can follow along with the conversation. We were jumping in there at verse 25 of chapter 6. Notice what Jesus says here, For a couple of things. He identifies their false motivation. Why had they tracked him down? Why had they done all that hard work in getting in boats, travelling across the sea, searching through Capernaum and coming to find him? Why had they come? Was it because they had worked out, look at that amazing thing he did, that amazing sign, Jesus must be someone special, we've got to find him to work, work out who he is and what, listen to, no. Jesus identifies their motivation. What is it? Because you got a free food, free feed. You've tracked me down because you got a free food of bread. You had, you had as much bread as you wanted. You, you satisfied and you're, now you're going, well, it's a new day. I've had my sleep. I'm ready for some more of that bread. Where is Jesus? Let's, let's go, let's go. Get more food from bread. They're tracking him down. He says, you didn't track me down because of the sign. No, you've just tracked me down because of the free food. That's what it is. So that's a false motivation. Secondly, that they missed the very point of the sign. The point of Jesus miraculously feeding them wasn't so that they had full tummies. The point was so that they would go, maybe this is the, the guy, the capital P prophet, and maybe we should understand who Jesus is and what he could really offer us. So they'd misunderstood the point of the sign. They'd missed the point of the sign. Thirdly, their determination was completely misplaced. Notice Jesus says there, you've been working, going to all this effort for food that just spoils, like the manna that went off overnight. You're, you're chasing after me, doing all this work just to get some bread. You don't really understand what I could offer you. Because he says, why don't you work, why don't you put your effort into food that will endure, not spoil, not go, why, why don't you work for the food that endures even to eternal life? Why don't you work for that which I, as the Son of Man, could give you? You've come after bread, you don't understand what I could give you. 
the Son of Man on whom God has placed his seal of approval. They've misunderstood. Their determination has been misplaced. Why are you working for these things? Now, Jesus' mention of the word, sort of the idea of working, working for God's approval, sets them off a little bit. That brings us to the second interaction from verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they're saying, oh, Jesus, you talked about getting God's approval, okay, yep, and the works that we're doing, yeah. So what are the works that we should do? What are the works we should do to get God's approval? Um, I wonder what answer they were expecting. What works God approved, uh, would, would God want from them? Well, maybe they were expecting, keep my Sabbaths, or follow the law, or obey the Ten Commandments. Any of those you would sort of expect, I guess, coming from a Jewish background. Those would be the works, you think. But what Jesus' answer is, actually, there's only one work, singular, only one work that God wants you to do. What's that work? Believe in the one he has sent. Now, that answer is simultaneously radical and not radical at all. It's not radical at all because the one thing that God has always wanted from his people is believe, trust him, have faith in him, love him, listen to him, respond in faith to him, in trust, in belief to him. Treat him as your God. That's the one thing he's always wanted. Underneath all of those Old Testament laws that he gave his people was that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. So to believe in God is not radical, right? That's always been the same. But what's radical is believe in the one he has sent. If you want to believe in the one true living God, then you have to believe in whoever he sends. You can't reject the one he sends and claim to still be believing in that one true living God. You have to believe in the one he has sent. That is the only work God wants you to do. That is an incredibly liberating message. I don't know what you think God wants of you, what God demands or requires of you, what works do you think the one true living God requires of you? Do you think, I guess I've got to go to church, I've got to turn up to Bible study, got to get along to my EU activities, got to lead youth group, got to read my Bible. I mean, I'm so hopeless at reading my Bible. I mean, God probably hates me. I mean, he doesn't hate me, but he probably doesn't like me very much because I don't read my Bible. So what are the works that you are convinced God wants you to do? There's only one. There is only one work God wants you to do. Believe. Believe in the one he has sent. If you believe in Jesus, you trust yourself to Jesus, that is the only thing God wants you to do. That's the only thing he requires of you. Now, 
The act of doing that will have all sorts of implications on your life, radical implications on your life, but it's only, it's just one thing. Believe in the one he has sent. Reminds me of when Jesus said to the crowds, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Coming to Jesus is liberating from all the works that you're convinced God wants you to do, because there's only one thing he requires of you. Believe in the one he has sent. Isn't that great? Isn't that freeing? So, there's the second interaction. Now, believing in the one he has sent sets the crowd off again. How so? Well, because they know their Exodus story. And they know that in Exodus chapter 4, when the one true living God appeared to Moses and said, Moses, I'm going to send you to the Israelites and to Pharaoh, Moses said, but how, how could I go? What, what, how, how will they believe me? And the one true living God gives Moses some party tricks that he can do in front of the Israelites to help them believe that God sent them. There's one involving his staff and one involving his hand. He puts his hand in and it becomes leprous and then he puts it back in and it comes out clean. And so he's got these party tricks he can do. So he rocks up to the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 4, we're told, Moses does the party tricks, the signs, the miraculous signs, and they believed him. So the crowd here are going, hang on, hang on, hang on. You've just said believe in the one he has sent. Well, like he sent Moses. So, so give us some sign. Jesus, give us a sign. What sort of sign are they looking for, though? Let's have interaction number three. What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe it? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're still after the free food. They don't want Jesus to turn a hand leprous and clean again. They're going, now let's have more of the food, the free food you gave us yesterday. How about you do that sign for us? We'd be happy with that. What's Jesus' response? Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying here, the manna that you guys just keep wanting, right, the more the free bread, that is not the true bread. That is not the real stuff that I could give you. You should be going for the true bread. The stuff that will give life, not just to your mortal body for another day, the bread I can give you will give life to the whole world. I can give you that bread. Now, they get a little bit excited about that. Let's then hear interaction number four. Sir, always give us this free bread. I am the bread of life hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. 
For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So notice what Jesus says here in verse 34. He identifies himself as the bread. The bread that he can give is not some third thing. The bread that he can give, and this will give life to the whole world, is actually himself. I am the bread, he said, the bread of life. What's more, he promises here complete, unending satisfaction. Notice he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, will never be thirsty, a few verses later, and I will never drive them away. Permanent provision, complete satisfaction, never hungry, never thirsty, because you've got Jesus, the true bread of life. But what's he talking about? I mean, are you feeling a bit peckish right now? Are you a follower of Jesus? Did you wake up hungry this morning and you're a Christian? Oh no! Jesus said I would never be hungry! When you go on a run and you come home and you're going, I'm feeling thirsty. Oh no, crisis of faith! Because Jesus said I would never be thirsty and now I'm thirsty. Now you assume that's not what what does he mean then? You come to me, you will never be thirsty, you'll never be hungry, I will never drive you away. The clue is in the last bit of what he just said there. Twice he says, I will raise them up at the last day. I will raise them up at the last day. What he's talking about is resurrection. Being raised up to life beyond death. Now, how is that connected to hunger and thirst? What's he talking about? Well, being raised to life after death is not just about, cool, I'm alive again, here we go. Resurrection in the Bible is a much, much bigger deal. And let me just try to point that out for you, just scratch the surface off for you. Think about this. You are only raised if you die. Why do humans die? because of the just judgment of God against sin. The consequences of that judgment against sin is not just death, though, it's a whole bunch of mess. So on one side, you've got sin and judgment and death and all the mess and Manchester and everything else that happens, right? It all, that's one big, ugly truth. When Jesus says, you come to me, you will never hunger, you will never be thirsty, I will raise you up to the last day, to be raised is to have that whole mess overturned. To be raised must mean you, you have come out from underneath the judgment of God. It, to be raised must mean your sin has been dealt with, has been forgiven. To be raised means not just entry back into that old world of mess and sin and death, it means to be, enter into the new kingdom of God where God fixes all the mess, and it's life as he intends life to be. That's the significance of resurrection. And Jesus is saying, you've been chasing after meeting the longings of your stomach. What are the deeper longings? What are the real longings that you have? You come to me, and you will never be hungry your deepest longings and desires will be met when you come to me. Not necessarily right now, but 
because I will raise you up at the last day. And all of that mess will be overturned by the one true living God. And you will enter into that reality. That's what I can give you. And you're after a little bit of free bread? What are your heart's desires? What are the deep longings of your heart? Did you listen to what happened in Manchester? Does it not make you want to cry out for justice? That someone would stop these things happening? Do you have a longing for security? Do you have that deep desire actually just to be securely and thoroughly loved? Come to me, says Jesus, and you will never be hungry and you will never be thirsty and I will never drive you away for I will raise you up at that last day. That's what I can give you. That's amazing. That's who he is. That's what he came to give. Now, how do you access that? Well, it's there in the passage. He talks about coming to him and believing in him. Believe in the one he has sent. Now, where the rest of the conversation goes is they they struggle with this and Jesus gets more and more in their face about it and says, ends up saying, unless you eat my flesh like the Passover lamb, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have this life. But that's just a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor for fully partaking of Jesus. Augustine, a famous early Christian theologian, said, believing you have eaten of Jesus. When you believe, you fully partake of Jesus. And the tragedy is, as Jesus explained those things, a whole bunch of people heard him say those things and they just walked away. But he comes to give this sort of life. I'm reminded of a quote by C.S. Lewis, that you might have heard me use before, but I think it's a good one. Thinking about this very thing, of what Jesus offers, our deepest longing and desires, he says this, He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joys are offered us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum, because we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus says, come to me. You will never be hungry. You will never be thirsty. And I will never drive you away, for I will raise you up at the last day. That's what he offers. That's why it is, and this is a very rough gear change at this point, that's why it's going to be really exciting to talk about annual conference uh, about resurrection. (laughs) Because this is just scratching the little bit of the surface of what we want to do in trying to understand what God has to say about resurrection. Ancon's coming up this July, um, and Rego's going to be um, closing sometime soon. I should probably know the date, but I don't. Um, 
Anyway, I really enjoyed AnCon. AnCon was the time that, um, yeah, after first semester, first year, being a little bit lost and not really knowing who my friends were and still trying to work out where my treats and my lectures were, that was the time that I really got to know people in my faculty and really developed some really strong friendships with them. Um, yeah, some of my best friends I met at AnCon. And so I'd really um, encourage you to join, not just for that reason, but also because you get to learn um, from God's word um, in a really safe uh, environment where you can ask questions, um, yeah, and just get teaching that you're not able to get really at any other time in your life. So I'd really encourage you to go. Um, talk to those people, Isaac and Sam and you know the other people who were standing up and have been to many ANCONs and continue to go um, because they know how valuable it is.